Hello, hello, lovely listeners. All of you ghouls and goblins. And everything in between. Welcome to Across the Veil with Zelda and Emma. Hello, hello on this beautiful, watery February. (laughs) I say that, it's about to rain in Los Angeles, so I'm not that far off. It was just raining in New Orleans. Yeah, you're not wrong. It's a wet Feb. It's a wet, ooh, I hate that. Yeah, that was bad. That's an awful thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) But it is true. It is. Especially with our episode. Yeah, we're really getting wet. God. We're getting lakey. We're getting (laughs) swampy. Gross. So your creature is kind of a mix of two things, isn't it? It's a mix of a lot of things. At its core, it is a water monster that Mm -hmm. habitates in inland waters of Australia, but it's been described as many things. Well, my guy is also a water monster found in inland rivers and streams, just in Japan, he's kind of like a little goblin guy, but also a turtle. <laughs> so, <laughs> why be one when you can be both? I think that's what makes them a monster, is that they're not <laughs> quite normal. Mm-hmm. But that's why we love them. So, yeah, two river creatures, monsters, spirits, things. That's for you to decide and for <laughs> us to tell you about. That's what we got going on today. And I don't know anything about what Zelda's about to tell me except for one key fact. Oh yeah, um, just a warning for y'all. Well, actually, no, I'm not going to warn y'all because it's going to come as a surprise later. <laughs> Adding suspense in. Ha ha. Ha ha. Yes, and I know very little about the creature you're doing. So yes. it's going to be learning all around. So the creature I'm going to tell you guys about is called the Bunyip. So the Bunyip comes from indigenous Australian folklore. And if I start doing an Australian accent at any point in this... You're allowed to make fun of her on Twitter if she does. Yes. Make fun of her accent work. The condensation. Emma! Emma! The condensation! Clear! Emma! That meme hits home. We're allowed to make these references because it's about mermaids, which are an aquatic creature. (laughs) Yes. Anyways, I'll move on. The Bunyip comes from indigenous Australian folklore and is a legendary water monster that's said to inhabit the inland waters of Australia, lurking in reedy swamps, creeks, riverbeds, and deep water holes. It's one of the most important figures in Aboriginal folklore, with tales of the Bunyip going back as far as 40,000 years. Dang. Yeah, but it's a tricky figure to pin down. There are lots of variations in the folklore. Some myths say that it's a bloodthirsty predator, eager to drown or eat humans and animals alike. Others say it was sent to Earth as a protector of wildlife, willing to bring justice and punishment to anyone who commits evil acts, especially against the environment. As they should. As they should, yes. As they should, if you fuck with the environment, Bunyip will fuck you up. Yeah, it's even been described as a gentle herb for. The Bunyip got even more complicated when European colonizers showed up in Australia and put their own spin on the monster, which they made basically go the Victorian era version of viral. To say that three times fast. Victorian era version of viral. Well, you did it better than I did, so whatever. Okay, but before we go into the popularized European version of the Bunyip, let's talk about its origins. So in the beginning, the Bunyip was a water spirit. It also was not necessarily called the Bunyip and instead had a bunch of different names. The cultural history of indigenous Australians is deeply connected to the landscape and customs. So the legends would differ based on the norms created by the tribe's territory. And fun fact, Before Europeans colonized Australia, there was an estimated 250 languages spoken there. So since there were so many cultures and territories, it makes sense that there would be so many variations. Is that a fun fact or is that a, aww, 
colonizing ruined things. It's an interesting, sad fact. Yep. <laughs> yep. Although there have been sightings of the creature all over the Australian continent, he's always associated with inland water, but is only a mainly aquatic creature. So while he's mainly chilling in the water, he's also been spotted walking around on dry land. So he can get out if he pleases. It's not just water, it's a little half and half. Yeah. Well, not half and half, but like... A little three-fourths and a quarter. Yeah. While where he dwells is pretty much always the same sort of place, even if he's everywhere, the way he looks differs wildly from tail to tail, like wildly. However, there are two pretty popular descriptions. The first most popular description, and the one that I personally like to envision, says that he is a four-legged creature that resembles a huge seal with long, shaggy, dark hair, a round head that looks like a bulldog's with prominent ears, claws, and razor-sharp fangs. The second most popular description is of a chimera-like being, sort of a bird-alligator combo, with a super long, maned neck, a small head resembling an emu, small tusks, the body of an alligator with abnormally thick hind legs, and long, clawed forelegs. In the water, it swims like a frog, but walks like a human on land. In the water, I too swim like a frog because breaststroke is my favorite stroke, <laughs> and when I used to do competitive swimming, that's where I excelled. Freestyle for me, baby, all the way. That's where I got that number one ribbon in the fifth grade. Um. (laughs) (laughs) We both used to swim. That's something I didn't know about you. That's what the aquatic month brings out of us. But those are just the most popular sightings or ideas of what the creature looks like. It's been said to have feathers, fins, flippers, a ton of eyes, just one eye, a mouth, stomach. Not all necessarily at once kind of mix and match him. He's also been depicted as like a strange squid thing. And someone even said that he looks like a massive starfish, which I personally find hilarious because I just think about Patrick Starr (laughs) with like a mouth on his stomach. The iconic starfish. And he's also been seen as like a fishy frog man, which don't think merman, think fishy frog on top, man on bottom. Ooh. So like worst version. But no matter the description, everyone agrees he's aquatic and massive, big enough to be a man-eater. Big, like really big. Yes. He can go from, I think about five feet to 13 feet. Oh. Yeah, standing up, 13 feet. The bunyip is nocturnal and attacks under the cover of night. Booming noises and loud roars indicate its presence. Most myths say that it's bloodthirsty and will attack anything and anyone that gets a little too close to the edge of its watery home. Like almost anything in Australia. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Though its favorite snack is women and children. Some stories say it has supernatural powers, capable of hypnotizing humans or crippling them with his roar. Despite his long claws, the bunyip's preferred way of killing is a little more unorthodox. He's been accused of killing many indigenous Australians by, quote, hugging them to death. It's That's a little Mahaha-esque where he tickles you to death. It's yeah, like, it, that's going to be kind, and they've both got the long fingers. That's kind of an interesting... Yeah, I actually thought about that when I was researching it. Thank you for the connection. So... No matter the story or the looks, the bunyip always functions as a warning to children and adults alike of the danger and unpredictability of inland water. In one story, a woman goes out one night to fetch water from a nearby river when she sees a pair of glowing red eyes lurking under the surface. The bunyip suddenly attacks the woman, tearing off her arm. When the men of the village went to hunt the creature in the morning, all they could find was a blood-covered black and red feather. In another, While playing by the river one night, a young boy was captured by the bunyip. 
who takes the boy into his cave. A man goes to save the boy, rubbing his body with dead body fat before diving into a river to find the cave. When the man enters the cave, he waves feathers and sings, putting the bunyip to sleep, allowing him to bring the boy home safely. Get your water in the daytime. Mm -hmm. Word. For indigenous people, the bunyip is a warning of dangerous water, no matter what form he's in. But this is not how the Europeans saw him when they first heard of the bunyip. So here's where things get more confusing. Of course. When Europeans came into the picture, the bunyip changed from a water spirit to an amalgamation of the two cultures that made it more digestible for non-indigenous people, as they have the tendency to do. Yeah, not the first time, not the last time. Nope. European colonizers first came to Australia in the late 1700s, starting with the British in 1788. And as they and the indigenous people made contact, the indigenous people shared their stories and culture with the newcomers. But nothing made quite so much of an impact as the bunyip. Tales of the bunyip were told by indigenous people with such belief and vividness that the Europeans believed that it had to be some prehistoric animal that was simply unidentified by European science. This is somewhat fair because the Europeans, and particularly those first Britain colonizers, had seen very little outside of their own cities and towns. So Australia looked wild to them. Like, can you imagine seeing some of these things for the first time? What the fuck is that gigantic rabbit? It's a kangaroo. <laughs> what the fuck is that massive running bird? Emu. And what the fuck is that weird looking thing? Platypus. Everything was new to them. Yeah. It kind of makes sense that they thought the bunyip was roaming around with the koalas. They probably saw dingoes and were like, ooh, puppies. Dingoes, not puppies. Dingo no. ate my baby. Dangerous. 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 <laughs> So European researchers set out on a scientific quest to find the legendary bunyip. Over the early to mid-1800s, tons of potential bunyip fossils and sightings began popping up. The first documented evidence of the bunyip was a huge set of unidentified bones discovered by famous explorer Hamilton Humes in 1818. Though, he did not think that they were actually bunyip bones, more likely a manatee or a hippo. But that didn't stop the other scholars from thinking they were. The Philosophical Society of Australia even offered to pay Humes to go back to the lake where he found the skeleton and transport it to their headquarters, and he said no. I would have done it for a check. Oh, pff, me too. It was hard to get to, though. Didn't like walking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 1800s. <laughs> they didn't really have cars. <laughs> horses. Bunyips. Ride a kangaroo. Bring me my kangaroo. I must find the bunyip. Um. <laughs> <laughs> then in 1830, another set of huge bones were found in a cave. The anatomist Sir Richard Owen identified these bones as belonging to a giant extinct marsupial species, while noting that the surrounding tribes had a tradition about a similar giant creature living in nearby waterways. So finding these fossils only solidified people's beliefs that the bunyip was real. And newspapers in the 19th century started to report an explosion of sightings. The bunyip craze truly began to peak in 1845 when a newspaper called the Geelong Advertiser published an article by Peter Ravenscroft called Wonderful Discovery of a New Animal, which claimed that fossils found near Geelong, which is believe a town or city, uh, were definitive proof of the bunyip's existence. The account said the fossil, which for the record was one singular bone, was shown to an indigenous man who immediately identified it as belonging to a bunyip. But this wasn't the only evidence Ravencroft had to offer. He also met a man who gave the, quote, most direct evidence of all when he showed several deep wounds on his chest made by the claws of the animal. 
The article also provided a picture drawn by the man who had identified the bones, as well as a detailed description of the bunyip, which, for the record, was the long-necked emu-alligator combo. So, not only was this article reprinted in tons of Australian newspapers, but in 1846, a book about Australia published in London included an excerpt from the article about this previously unknown but newly discovered species, so my boy was international news now. International superstar, the bun yip. Oh yeah. In 1847, a cycloptic bizarre skull was attributed to the bun yip and was even put on display in the Australian Museum in Sydney as evidence of its existence. However, while the display was super popular, experts identified the skull to likely be a malformed calf, and then it was mysteriously stolen, so. Yeah, that sounds like a thing that people would say, like, oh, it's a malformed calf, and then they take it and, like, they transport it to Area 51. <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. The government has bunyips everywhere. They have. They know. They know they exist. They know. So the display, of course, fueled the fire that was the bunyip, and there were tons more accounts written about the sightings. But like all spectacles, interest eventually fades, and by the end of the 1850s, the bunyip's fame had started to dwindle. Sightings died down and explanations began to rise, such as people misinterpreting sightings of elephant or leopard seals that had migrated up rivers, far away from their normal seaside habitat. The bellowing cry that they heard may have been the seal's bark, or the cry of a bittern marsh bird, which I've heard are very loud. Yeah. The most interesting thing, though, is what started the legend of the bunyip to begin with. What had indigenous Australians seen that was so striking that the stories were passed down for thousands of years? There's a really cool possible explanation for that. Some researchers claim that the bunyip is the cultural memory of a prehistoric marsupial called the diprotodon. Although the diprotodon supposedly went extinct 46,000 years ago, the passing of scientific information through indigenous Australian storytelling has been corroborated through studies. So stories of the bunyip could actually be records of indigenous Australian interaction with megafauna passed down through oral tradition. Oh, how cool, right? And there's weird shit in Australia, so I think it's entirely possible. I think it's 100% possible. Who knows what's happening in Australia? There is so much weird shit. Ultimately though, scientists were unable to verify the bunyip's existence and the creature is now considered folklore, but he's still a pretty popular guy. And it's one of the few indigenous Australian myths that's become a part of everyday Australian culture, but more as a gentle creature rather than bloodthirsty. And so he's been in tons of children's books and TV series. So yeah, that's what I have for my creature. So I guess now it's time to get into your creature, which is going to be, <laughs> I assume, quite the time. So the creature I'll be telling y'all about today is the kappa. It's not kappa. It's not kappa. It's kappa. Kappa Kappa Gamma? Ew. <laughs> Ew, David. I'm a legacy for Kappa Kappa Gamma. I'm a Kappa legacy through my grandmother, I think. Through my grandmother as well. Hey! Did not join the sororities. We're not sorority girls, and that's why we have a paranormal podcast now. <laughs> yup. That's what happens to the theater kids. Mm-hmm. So, kappas are arguably one of the most famous Japanese yokai, and yokai, if you're not familiar, if you haven't heard our Yukiona episode, is a class of supernatural creature in Japanese folklore. So, the kappa might be something you've heard of if you're interested in Japanese culture, but for those of you not in the know, we've got the kappa covered because these guys are super fascinating. <laughs> Tell me more. In Japanese, kappa translates to river child, and that's kind of exactly what these guys are. They're aquatic reptilian humanoids that inhabit rivers and streams in Japan. They're 
roughly the size of a human child, but stronger than most fully grown adults. Kappa range in color, but are typically described in natural greens and blue tones, so they blend in kind of with the flora and fauna around rivers. So as with most aquatic creatures, the texture of their skin is scaly, which also happens to me when I don't moisturize enough. <laughs> Same. They also have webbed hands and feet, but possess a turtle-like beak and a shell. Aww. They also apparently have three assholes. Oh, oh god, this is, this is where the little detail that she told me about comes in, isn't it? Yeah, now Emma, I'm not gonna lie to you. Listeners, not gonna lie to you either. There's a lot of butt stuff coming up, <laughs> and I don't know why, but this is your warning, butt stuff ahead. There will be talk about stuff. My story doesn't have butt stuff. Well, we can't all just decide not to talk about butt stuff, Emma. I mean, I did. I don't have the same constitution as you do. <laughs> it's time to talk about butt stuff, y'all. I'm just stronger than you. <laughs> nah, tell me about the butt stuff. You're an asshole. <gasps> hey! Oh my god. Go ahead. Um, so one of the most important parts of kappa anatomy is at the top of their skulls where there's a little indentation shaped like a dish that's always filled with water. But if the kappa were to spill this water, they would be completely powerless, which is important to remember. Important. Okay. Kappa are also incredibly smart, and they're some of the only yokai that can learn human languages, and they're very knowledgeable healers. Legend says that humans learn to set broken bones from the advice of a benevolent kappa. Hmm. So like old Japanese doctors in ye olde days talked to a kappa, and he was like, yeah, yeah, if your bones, they break, you do this. And they're like, oh, holy shit, thanks, dude. <laughs> Sick. Sick. Yeah, I just picture a kappa now in like a little doctor coat. Like, how cute would that be? <laughs> He's got like a little stethoscope. Oh, it reminds me of um, that old kids show, Franklin, like with the little <gasps> turtle boy. Yeah, except... But I'm, he's a doctor who likes butt stuff. Butt stuff doctor, he's gonna mend your broken bones. <laughs> Jack of all <laughs> trades. <laughs> Truly. So, Kappa are known to have two favorite foods. Human innards sucked out through the anus. Oh. Delicious. And also cucumber. Yum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Their love for cucumbers actually dates all the way back to the Edo period, where people believed that carving their names onto a cucumber and then throwing it into the river would placate the kappa, and then they'd leave you alone. Something like that could make me leave you alone. I yeah. mean, toss a bottle of champagne at me, and I'm all good. I'm not going to bother you. <laughs> Just, yeah, I'll leave you to it. Do whatever you want. Throw some money across the room. I'm darting over. It's probably just a $1 bill. I'm still going. She skitters over there. So yeah, they really love cucumbers, which I mean, they love cucumbers so much and it's so legendary that they love cucumbers is that cucumber sushi rolls are called kapamaki after these creatures because they love the vegetable. Now, most kappa are not very nice to humans. They're either tricksters or downright malicious. Most of the reasons they screw with humans has to do with butts, obviously. <laughs> so here we go. Legends say that kappa would have been known to hide in rural toilets and when someone, mostly women, would sit down, they'd uh, stroke her cheeks or grab a handful. No. No. That's one of my biggest fears is something sneaking up on me on the toilet. And grabbing. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. N not even the grab. Like I've seen like videos of on TikTok like of like snakes in the toilet. No. 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 None of no. that. I don't no. want that in my life. No, thank you. Yeah. So uh, these little perverts grab the booty. <laughs> this is why I kind of wish women could stand up to pee. Yeah. It would be helpful. It'd be helpful in a lot of ways, and this just is added to the list. Yep. It's, su I mean, super gross thing that they do, but it's really the second worst thing that Kappa do that involves human butts. It gets worse. Oh my god. So, <laughs> oh god, sorry, 
I don't know if I'm going to be able to not laugh because this is fascinating. And doing the research for this, I was losing it constantly. So according to folklore, Kappa are obsessed with a mythical object called a Shiri Kodama, which is basically a magical jewel that contains a person's life force. Mm. It happens to be found in a human's anus. Of course. Where else would it be? It also doesn't actually exist. Are you sure about that? <laughs> they think there's a mythical jewel inside your booty hole and nobody has said anything to otherwise. They're just like... Yeah, sure. And then people checked and they were like, but it's not. And the cop are like, but, but it, it is. is. And we, we want it. <laughs> I swear to God, I can see it sparkling from here. Yep. Well, it's theorized that most kappa attacks are so that they could steal the stool from you, which does kill you in the process. Tragic. <laughs> Sometimes a cop is just hungry and they will kill you by sucking out your innards just because nobody's given them a cucumber in a while. So it's kind of zero to 60. <laughs> Have a cucumber on you. <laughs> At all times. So an interesting fact about this anus jewel, and I cannot <laughs> believe those two words left my mouth together. Anus jewel. Just had to say it again, sorry. Uh, the reason people think that this thing existed is because victims of drowning all had really loose sphincter muscles. Because when you're dead, you can't control your musculature, and that's one of the, the that little embouchure is what goes. So they figured drowning victims with super loose buttholes, it's because something was trying to grab something that was up there instead of realizing, like, oh, rigor mortis. <laughs> so... I love the olden days when people were just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason the buttholes are loose is there was a jewel in there and a cop had tried to steal it. <laughs> Science has really come so far. I love that that was just the natural conclusion. Science, yeah. you, they were storytellers. The creativity, so much better than what we have today. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there's a butt jewel, anus gem. Yeah, grab it. Perfect sense, totally. Yeah. Um, so you might be thinking, I want to keep my anus jewel where it's supposed to be. So how would you defeat a kappa? It's actually super, super simple. So kappa are super polite. And while they love roughhousing and pretending to sumo fight, they're also deeply obsessed with the intricacies of human decorum. They're kind of like gnomes in that way. They're very obsessed with human decorum and being polite. Being polite, yeah, household rules. So one of the most polite things you could do in Japan is bow. So if you bow to a kappa, they are deeply obliged to bow back. And if they do so, they'll spill the little water on top of their heads and they will be completely powerless. And then you just fucking nuke them? Well, no, they, so basically is that just kind of makes them useless and they won't attack you. They're all good. You've neutralized the threat. Mm -hmm. But if you offer to refill the bowl on the kappa's head, it will be indebted to you for the rest of your life. So there's a bunch of stories from Japan of like heroes saving their entire village from ever being attacked because they refilled this guy's little water dish. I think he just goes fucking bonkers on anybody who tries to come into town. Yeah, pretty much. Saved his life. Yeah, he's like, I'll rip that jewel right out of your ass. Any one of you try to fuck up this town. Exactly. I don't give a shit. I'll fucking do it. <laughs> Craziest security ever. <laughs> yeah, who needs a gun when you've got a butt monster? <laughs> A watery butt demon. That looks like a child turtle. I love Japanese shit. This is great. I do too. But because they're really smart, some kappa have been known to cover their bowl so the water doesn't spill. Ooh. So they heard humans be like, oh yeah, spilled the bowl. And they were like, nah, fuck that. And they put stuff to cover it. So if you encounter one of these guys, you can defeat him by just tearing his arm off. It super easily detaches from the body. You just tear his arm off and then the kappa will promise you just about anything to get their arm back. And a kappa always keeps their promise. 
is tearing their arm off also like just like a catch-all? For stopping them. Yeah, for stopping them. So you either spill the bowl, which is pretty easy because if you bow, they yeah, bow, 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 bowl spills. Uh, grabbing someone's arm and tearing it off is a little more difficult, but that's also... It's a solid option in a pinch. Solid option. So there's two ways to neutralize your kappa. So the kappa myth probably came about as a cautionary tale for children. Like a lot of the creatures we discuss, it's kind of to quit people from doing dangerous shit. So, oh, be careful around water or you'll drown sort of thing. Yeah, that's the exact same lesson as my creature has. Yeah, water's dangerous. Be mindful of the water. But scientifically speaking, the Japanese giant salamander is kind of a close match for what people describe as the kappa. So people might have seen these things and go, oh, that's that's a kappa right there, because they grow up to five feet in length, which is about child size. Yeah. They drown their prey, and they also live in rivers and streams. They're not super turtle-like, but their color's kind of the same. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. People heard stories of kappas, saw these things, and were like, yeah, that's definitely real. Modern kappa depictions are much, much cuter than their ancestral counterparts. In the 1960s, these creatures became kawaii-fied, which is kind of like made more adorable, and they're now a pretty common character in environmental protection adverts. Aww. So they're ambassadors for clean water and caution while swimming. And watch your butt. Yeah. Watch your butt and uh, don't fuck with the environment, which I think is, that's a good character arc for these creatures. Oh, they yeah. started off stealing butt jewels, and now they're trying to make the world a more clean, sustainable place. That's beautiful. There's a few kappa proverbs that I like, but one I want to share with you right now is kappa no kawanagare. Butchered that, I apologize. <laughs> um, which means even a kappa can drown which also translates into, you can screw up the thing that you're really good at. <laughs> and I feel like for you and I, big mood. Big mood. Just as artists, that's a big mood. It's like, yeah, so like always be on your toes because even if you think you're super good at this thing, you can mm -hmm. screw it up. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. In modern pop culture, there are instances of kappa like the Pokemon Lombre, which is loosely based on the kappa, and... I don't play Animal Crossing, but I know a lot of people love Animal Crossing, and there's a character called Kappen, K-A-P-P apostrophe N, and in the Japanese version, he's a kappa. Um, in the Western version, they do call him a turtle. But yeah, that's the crazy kappa. Crazy kappa. Crazy with a K. So mind your booty hole and always have a cucumber on deck if you're going swimming in mysterious rivers, and that's, that's the tea. Solid advice for any moment in life, honestly. Yeah, have a cucumber, protect your booty hole. They keep turning these things kid-friendly. Yeah. It's actually very interesting how these two creatures are like. Went from bloodthirsty to stay the fuck out of the water to cute. And now part of kind of the cultural consciousness. But they still retain their own local flavor. Yeah. I love the bunyip. It's sad that a lot of the descriptions come from the colonizers and settlers. And Instead of indigenous voices. Yeah. And it's just because they wrote them down. Yeah. But the amount of time that it stayed within mainstream Australian culture is really cool because it still recognizes the spiritual beliefs and culture of indigenous people before European intervention. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. River monsters. Stay out of the rivers unless you're willing to battle a bunyip or unless you've got a cucumber in your back pocket. So before we end the episode, we have two new Patreon members that we'd like to thank. Thank you so much, Julata and Grant. Thank y'all. Our promo this week is from Sheer Crime Podcast. They're two former hairdressers that now talk about true crime. Hi guys, I'm Amy. And I'm Kenzie. And we are the hosts of the new true crime podcast, Sheer Crime. 
We are old beauty school friends who reconnected a decade later to learn that not only did we now live in the same town, but we are both true crime fanatics. Every week, in the comfort of my basement, cold drinks in hand, we discuss true crime documentaries and give our raw and uncensored take on the evil acts that occur in our world. If COVID, quarantine, and working from home have you aching for a break from the same old, same old, come hang with us on Share Crime. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else that you subscribe and listen. New episodes are released every Wednesday and bonus episodes are sprinkled in here and there. We can't wait to hear from you. And remember, never run with scissors. Bye. Bye. Well, for now, we're done. But we'll see you next time across the veil. It will still be water themed. (laughs) That was my bunny up impersonation. (laughs) 